Hey, is this thing plugged in? The wire. The wire. Can you hear anything? Hello, hello. Incredible as it may both the observations and oscillating and modulator assure you that recording is essentially a dishonest activity. Hi, I'm Joey Taylor, stepping out of the Academy across Canada on CBC Radio. Next message. Hey guys, Joey here. Thanks for the invite. Chilling out at your place tonight sounds good. I'll try to come by after the show. Although I may be pretty chilled out already, we're getting into the history of ambient music this week, from Gamelon to Satie to Muzak to Brian Eno. Although there's a lot of detail in it too, so I might be more riveted than relaxed. Either way, crank up that aquarium, and I'll see you later. Hi, I'm Joey Taylor, and this is The Wire. For you, what has been the biggest impact of electricity on music? In the past, you needed live people to make music. Back a couple of centuries ago, perhaps the only person that would have music while they were shaving would be the Sun King or something. But now, as we speak, there's probably several thousand people who are listening to music while they're shaving. So we get music all the time, uh, sometimes whether we want to or not. My name is Kenny Kahn. I'm the Senior Vice President of Product and Marketing for Music. I'm Gail Young. John Oswald. Dennis Patrick. Gordon Monaghan. Mark Kingwell, Professor of Philosophy at the University of Toronto. David Toot. I'm a writer. What we notice, if we notice it at all, is the kind of soundtrack that's played at a restaurant, for example, where it becomes sort of oral wallpaper. And there's nothing you can do about it. How do we perceive? music is always there in your environment it means that there's a, a very very different relationship to music it's, it's not so focused it's it's maybe not so special in a way you know there there's a term elevator music the recording technologies have been able to take music outside of the specific time and place that it's created in. And I think that's been a huge change in our way of thinking about music. Electricity tends to just make everything become everywhere. How do we perceive? Um, um, uh, um, you know, um, I'm wondering, well, what's going on in your ears? Um, you know, um, because um, how do we perceive ambient music? Somehow, I think that affects how we we perceive uh, sounds. Silence is Muzak's relationship with silence. We're a music company. We're an imaging company. We're an audio branding company. Our company is not about silence. How do we perceive unpleasant silences? Um, 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 how do we perceive ambient music? Um, 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 how do we perceive um, 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 unpleasant silences? The difference between noise and, and music is music has a purpose, and, and noise is something that fills an environment. Um, 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 how do we perceive? You can go to the far reaches of the earth today, and whatever business you're going to walk into, they're going to be playing uh, some form of music. Um, 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 how do we perceive? Noise. Um, music. How do we perceive? What's going on in your ears? Um, 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 the prevalence of music and, and how ubiquitous it has become in our 
society, you know. Noise is something that fills an environment. How do we perceive? Silence is. Music dict dictates lifestyle and y you know, you have to have your music with you, you know, like. How do we perceive? Music. What music are you listening to on your, your earphones right now, you know? Electricity tends to just make everything become everywhere. Noise. Um, music. How do we perceive? Noise. Um, music. How do we perceive? Electricity tends to just make everything become everywhere. Do you think that's changed the way people approach making music and the way people approach listening to music? Oh, definitely, definitely. same thing John Cage heard when he went to some very quiet place and he was told the high one was his nervous system and the low one was his bloodstream. Occasionally there would be a cry from a bird wheeling over the opening or a burst of monkey chatter or the rhythm of someone else grunting and swearing against that rope on the way down. It was fantastic music. David Took. I'm a composer and a musician and I'm a writer. I've written four books, Rap Attack, Ocean of Sound, Exotica and Haunted Weather. Historically, where does the whole uh, idea of background listening begin? What's the, what's the sort of pivotal moment there? I think the idea of of background music has always been present. You know, there's there's always been this idea that, that music could be played um, as a as a kind of tint to the environment, as as a mood changer. But you know, obviously, in in past centuries, this has been a very aristocratic notion.
To what extent do you think Eric Satie's uh, uh, notions about music have, have permeated the culture? Satie's idea, which I think is really a pivotal moment, um, his idea of musique d'ameublement, uh, the furniture music. Which, which, for listeners out there who may not be familiar with it, um, Satie started to create sort of musical events where live musicians would play and he would ask the audience to ignore the performance of the live musicians so that he could achieve this idea of background music. Furniture music originally came about um, as, as a way of, of masking what he called unpleasant silences. I mean, the idea that you'd be in a restaurant, say, and, and there's a silence. So you'd have music in the background, um, masking the sound of knives and forks. And uh, there was completely a, a foreign idea to people at that time. But um, I think Satie must have been thinking about the future of, of music. It was a it was a kind of radical idea. And, and Satie had the idea to use pre-existing pieces of music, which was, again, quite a radical idea at that time. And uh, they would be arranged in kind of cellular fashion, and, and he set up a, um, a performance of this, but then was very upset because people actually were listening to the music, and he, <laughs> he rushed around telling them to stop listening. You know, but that, that of course, was, was the habit of the time. And, and, you know, we look back at that now and think, oh, what a wonderful situation. People felt compelled to listen to music because right. nowadays they feel often compelled to just ignore it, even in concert situations. One, so, one, one wonders how he would have done in a shopping mall of today. Well, <laughs> I suspect he would have taken a perverse enjoyment <laughs> from it, but you can't be sure. Satti was very interesting and he was a very eccentric character, of course, and uh, one of his pieces, Vexation, is a piece where a piano phrase is repeated many, many times. It, it takes, you know, more or less um, a night to, to play that piece in, in its entirety. And in a sense, I felt that the pianist or, or many piano players because often this this piece is played in in relays because it's too mm. demanding for one person to play machines you know obviously they, they were fundamental to many of the changes that happened in culture and society in the 20th century and the pianist becomes a kind of a machine um, in order to play this piece and and so you have this idea of um, the real symbiosis between the human being thinking as a machine and the technology which in this case was the piano but uh, as the century developed of course the um, the machines became more self-determined Satie's dream in a way coming true ultimately mm. Um, 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 how do we perceive? Um, 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 unpleasant silences. One of the important points, from my point of point of view, was when Debussy heard uh, Javanese music at the Paris Exposition at the end of the 19th century. He heard a number of different um, types of music from different uh, geographical and cultural regions at this colonial exhibition at the end of the 19th century. And the one that influenced him most profoundly 
was the Javanese music, and, and I suppose he was able to link his sense of sonority and texture, his, his own personal aesthetic, to, to the sound of Javanese music. And one of the, the common uh, images, I, th I think, in, in, in the way that uh, Debussy and the people who came after him used in, in, in their way of making music was, was this idea of liquidity. One of the interesting things about Indonesian music is that uh, the music would have extended over very long durations and wouldn't necessarily have have been dependent on focused listening. People would eat and, and fall asleep and children would run about and play and cry and, and people would come and go. So I think it would be wrong to say it's background music because it was a very integral part of community life, but at the same time, that type of listening, a less focused listening, I think is closer to our idea of background music than, you know, say the very intensive listening um, uh, required in a concert hall. So I think there are precedents in, in other cultural situations. I mean, I suppose one of the challenges that, that Sati would face would be, would, which, which would have made his revolution easier, would have been the, the presence of recorded uh, sound. And I'm, I'm wondering if you think that's changed the way we listen to music as a culture. Inevitably, the, the, the distribution of music through, um, through radio and, and television and, and all the other media that have followed um, has had a huge impact on, on the way we perceive music and, and the music that's become available to us. And, and that in itself affects our perception of music. If, if we're aware of how many different types of music there are, and what they all express, what they all appeal to in, a, in, in ourselves, then um, our perception of, of what music can be is changed dramatically. Um, and I think, you know, we can think of instances in recent history where uh, the way in which music is broadcast has, has dramatically changed people's way of um, relating to music. And I think, for example, of... Um, MTV, which was a which was a kind of revolution in in that it broadcast music videos on a continuous basis, and in a way that's not something you want to just sit down and watch in the way that you would say watch a serious documentary on television or a, uh, you know a, a game show that that had a conclusion. There is no conclusion; it's just streaming, and and I think. 
That in itself was the beginning of, of a new aspect of background music. People who enjoyed MTV would kind of have it on on the background and they'd maybe tune in, tune out. Uh, of course, people have always used uh, the radio in the same way, that, that many people have the radio on in the background as a, as a kind of familiar voice, a, a sound that that maybe takes the edge away from isolation or, um, you know, it, it helps it helps with work and so on. And, and so... Th that possibility that, that music is always there in your environment um, means that there's a, a very, very different relationship to music. I think Satie must have been thinking about the idea of, of audio, which had only recently been invented at that time. His whole idea of furniture music was an extremely radical avant-garde idea. By the 1940s, it was co-opted by Muzak um, as, uh, for shopping music. I'm not necessarily complaining about music because I do enjoy hearing it at uh, the shopping malls. Yeah. But, uh. <laughs> Likewise, and I, I don't know if you've been to the Muzak website, but it's it's kind of like uh, entering the future. My name is Kenny Kahn. I'm the senior vice president of product and marketing for Muzak. This year is the 70th anniversary of the company Muzak, which was uh, formed by General George Owen Squire. He was uh, a huge music fan and, and an entrepreneur in his own right and wanted to start a business. And uh, during World War I, he piped live music into typing pools uh, where there were teams of women typing the same letter over and over again. And uh, they had a difficult time staying motivated and his feeling was if he put live music, the live music of the day, into their typing pools, that it would keep them motivated, and it did, and that was kind of the beginning of, of music. There's a term, elevator music, that's tagged to Muzak, and it's actually an interesting story. As, as buildings started to be built, this funny little device called an elevator went in, and people were nervous to get into this little box that was held by a cable, and Squire had the idea that if he put in the modern music of the day, the Jimmy and Tommy Dorsey's of the day, into the elevator, that it could calm people's fears, and it did. Moving forward, the company started to put music into businesses all across the country. In 1984, Muzak introduced a program called Foreground Music One, which was popular contemporary music of the day, and it was the original artist. And today the company produces um, literally thousands of programs that are customized for the biggest businesses and brands on the planet. Muzak is in over 400,000 businesses uh, across the United States and, and throughout Canada. What, what was wrong with silence? What's, what, what, what's the need to put music in, in all spaces? Um, 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 uh, how do we perceive? Unpleasant silence. We, we, we're, a, we, we're a music company. Our company is not about silence. The idea of putting music in a business is a big idea. Today, a business sees itself having the responsibility to create an experience for the customer that shops in the store, the employee that comes to work in the business, or the person that eats in the restaurant. You can go to the far reaches of the earth today, and whatever business you're going to walk into, they're going to be playing uh, some form of music inside of that, that business. So I think it's, it's 
music makes you feel good. It, it, music does all the right things for, for a business. What's audio architecture? Audio architecture is is just that. It's the uh, it's the intuitive approach that we take to capturing the emotional power of music and putting it to work for our clients. Think of a, a business, IKEA. IKEA is a is a very large and physical space uh, retailer. And they have all of these different zones inside of their store, and they're trying to accomplish different things inside of that, that store. So they may come to us and, and say the environment, the experience that we want to create in the potted plants area is very different from the dining room area and help us set the right experience, create the right music for those, those parts of the business. So it's, uh, it, it's done um, quite intuitively. Um, there is an enormous amount of technology and data and all of those things that are playing behind the scenes. But when it's all said and done, it's very transparent. What ultimately happens inside of the business is, is an experience is created with music. I'm Mark Kingwell, professor of philosophy at the University of Toronto. Um, elevator music, which is now a phrase we use, was meant to be pejorative for a while. What I, I guess, I, I don't dislike it so much as I, I wonder what it does to the music itself, the things that are chosen. And they typically are not classical or even, um, with some exceptions, up-to-date pop. They tend to be selections from, from the, the so-called golden age of popular music, the American songbook stuff. Um, which is fantastic popular music, which really does mark in, in the, the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, um, a genuine attempt by you know, this, this group of dedicated individuals to democratize music, to really create a new art form. And it saddens me a little bit to see you know, Gershwin and Cole Porter and um, Rogers and Hart reduced to this kind of cheesy background to people you know, eating their seared tuna. I had an experience not too long ago being at uh, Ikea. And, you know, there was a Fountains of Wayne tune and the students shelving or whatever. And then in the in the area where there's the houseplants and so on, they were playing Frippinino's Evening Star. And I, I've, I've saw my own tastes reflected and at once experienced this feeling of validation, like, oh my God, they're playing all my favorite stuff. And immediately followed by horror, like, oh my God, Ikea has got my number. W w can you explain my reaction? <laughs> That's that's very sophisticated musical programming, uh, um, but it's it's not out of sync with what we've seen in other aspects of the consumer um, universe. I think of it sometimes as um, existential vertigo, right? Because here I am, a, a fully fledged individual, um, having laboriously constructed my taste through trial and error, acquired greater degrees of sophistication, making informed and and I hope you know, intelligent choices, and somebody's, as you say, got your number. It's as if somebody downloaded the contents of your brain and put it into the turntable. At, at one level, there's nothing you can do about it, right? I mean, because every, every choice you make on the basis of your reaction will already be anticipated, right? Because any kind of um, rebellion or um, anti-taste is just another mo moment in the general economy. So at that point, I think we have to just kind of turn your back on this and get back into the music that, that means something, you know. My name's Gordon Monaghan. I'm a sound artist and composer. Um, the, the prevalence of music and, and how ubiquitous has, it has become in our society, you know. Back in the 1950s, music was kind of a special thing that you went and did, you know, you went and practiced your piano or, or your, your violin and you took your music lessons and played in certain spaces and in certain functions and so on. Um, nowadays, music dict dictates lifestyle and, y you know, you have to have your music with you, you know, like, um, what music are you listening to on your, your earphones right now, you know? People didn't take music around with them up until the invention of the transistor radio, mm. right? Being able to walk down the street with your music. 
the essence of the Walkman is uh, it, it changes my relationship to the, the surrounding environment, and this is another desired effect of the Walkman. I, I don't want people um, coming inside my head, and and everyone who listens to Walkmans, if, if um, as they're actually walking, knows this, right? It really changes your your sense of, of your urban environment. Not only can you, for instance, not hear car horns or something, um, you're just much more inside yourself. And I think it, it reflects at, at that level one of those uh, desires that we inherit from the late stages of individualism here at the you know the end of the 20th, beginning of the 21st century. We want, it, we want to soundtrack our lives. We want our lives to have the, the same kind of dramatic form uh, and mood as a film. And so the Walkman is really the attempted soundtrack of, of my, you know, my journey from home to work or whatever it is. You know, it's got a poignancy that, that we're, we're trying to assert individuality. This is my music. This music defines me as who I am, just like my clothes do, or as much as, or more so. And yet it's private. It accompanies you. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And, and of course, um, by the same token, too, it's, it's um, private and personal, but it's also available to anybody else. So uh, again, we c confront the familiar paradox that um, the music I'm desperately attempting to make my own and to establish my identity might be the same music that you're listening to. And that will force me, if I'm you know, insecure, to move on to something else again and hence down the line of, of ascending orders of cool. And so, you know, that dictates a kind of lifestyle, you know, music, and, and really, you know, that would not be possible without uh, the invention of, of audio. the way it took a guitar player to revolutionize instruments by trying to get his guitar to go louder, but then it took a rock musician to bring back the idea of music you can barely hear. That was Brian Eno, in the famous story where he's in hospital recovering from a collapsed lung and can't reach the radio knob to turn down the 18th century harp music, so it just seemed to mingle with the sounds drifting in the window or echoing down the hall. I don't want to sound too zen about it all, but when you think about it, all music is kind of about silence. I mean, we look through space to see the stars. Notes are like those stars, and silence is the space between them. When you look through a telescope, or amplify a guitar, or multi-track a tape, you're making those stars or sounds appear bigger. But sometimes it's nice to look through the telescope the other way, make the space more vast, the stars a bit fainter and more delicate, and let your mind kind of move in the in-between parts.
figure out what it is that I've been doing for so many years, he might say that I've been trying to extend the notion of what is musical into the field of sound that has been thought not to be musical. From the vantage point of the 21st century, what do you think Cage's lasting impact on music has been? Well, in terms of the social and cultural interpretations of music and implications of music. Um, he more or less defined uh, the broad sense of music existing in our environment um, with his 1951 piece, Four Minutes and 33 Seconds. Um, I think Cage said in his later years that that was his favorite piece that he had composed, mm. although compose is um, more or less in quotation marks because it's it's largely a conceptual mm-hmm. piece of music um, with music being absent um, the standard uh, sense of what we consider music to be is entirely absent from that piece um, on the other hand um, all, all of environmental sounds and the whole idea concept of music existing in the environment is what fills that piece up I had thought of the silent piece, oh, since, say, 48. I gave a lecture at Vassar, I think it was in 48, in which I uh, gave a lecture called A Composer's Confessions, and I told the history of my musical thought, and I announced that I wanted to write a silent piece, which I had not yet written. And four years later, it took me four years to decide to actually write it because I didn't wish it to appear, e- even to me, as, as, as something easy to do or, or, or as a joke. I wanted to mean it utterly and be able to uh, live with it. And it was Robert Rauschenberg's white paintings that gave me the permission to do that. We have uh, John Cage's four minutes and 33 seconds as kind of an example of simply putting a frame around a time period and asking you to pay attention to whatever passed through it at that point. I always think of this, uh, you know, when I was in Paris one time at the in front of the Georges Pompidou Center and there was this mm. old man with a spectacular face. He looked like Popeye. <laughs> and he was just sitting there with a tin can next to him, doing nothing. And then as people walked by, he would hold a frame around his face. <laughs> and encourage people to put money in, and and it was he, same thing. he was doing the same thing, yeah, same thing. Yes, I think Cage's four minutes thirty three seconds is is a pivotal work of of the twentieth century and of contemporary music, and it's it's a important piece not just because of what it proposed, but because it still causes us to think what was going on there, what's it about. I, I've been interested all along, uh, not so much in the, um, well, in music as something uh, separate from the rest of my experience, but music as something that um, that arose through a changed way of hearing. Hmm? rather than something that was um, an object that had a boundary and was out there separate from my hearing. The whole idea of environmental sound and being aware of the environment and listening intently to sound so that you're not just hearing things but you're listening to things. There's a distinguished, uh, you can distinguish 
clearly between those two actions. One is passive and one is more active. Sounds that are not coming from the loudspeaker, but are in the room where you're actually living and listening to the loudspeaker. Those are also uh, to be heard. It, it's like a, um, it's like a space of time in which the sounds can occur anywhere in the space. A lot of space. A lot of shifting and changing spaces. Recorded music basically has become the dominant form of music in the world. I heard I was the first generation to grow up listening more to recordings than to, con to live performances. I went to concerts, sure, but I, you know, if you measured the number of hours that I heard music on a record as opposed to the amount of hours that I heard music in a nightclub or in a concert hall, the records would win hands down. Now that's just become so much so, you know, I mean, people walking around with their iPods, you know, I mean, they're on most of the day. And, you know, I'm sure they get the concerts, but I mean, recorded music is the, has become the, the, the dominant form of, of, of listening to music pretty much worldwide well, for the last 20, 30, 40 years. So uh, that aspect of it uh, is, is overwhelming. How do you think that the ubiquity of music has changed the way we hear music and the way we make music? I think we are on such overload with video channels, radio stations, um, satellite delivered music, um, you know, the ability to download it onto personal devices um, that, that I think a lot of the the love and the art and the, the true belief that went into it is being lost because of overload. somewhere to be uh, quiet. Like, I mean, if you, I don't know if you have a place in nature or something that you go to that, that's, that's peaceful. That how, you know, where is that place and, and what do you think about when you're there? What do you think about without music? Um, um, I have a, a personal place that I like to go on the uh, southern tip of the island of Maui. Um, uh, preferably during the month of February when the whales are migrating and it's just, it's, it's so tranquil and gorgeous and it's just, it's a place to, to get away from it all. But I think everybody has their place, whether it's in the mountains or it's at the beach, um, you know. We live in a world of information overload and I think it's important that... How do we perceive? Um that all of us carve out that space to um, um, find that tranquility, find that, you know, that, in, that enjoyment and shut off some of that overload that's coming everyone's, everyone's way. Um, because... Um, how do we perceive? Ambient music. Silence is... Uh, you're so wired in that it's, I think, for most of the world, it's very difficult to slow down a little bit and, and enjoy the purity of it. How do we perceive?
I've been trying to extend the notion of what is musical into the field of sound that has been thought not to be musical. Um, 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 uh, unpleasant silences. The difference between noise and, and music is music has a purpose. Noise is something that fills an environment. Um, um, um. Electricity tends to just make everything become everywhere. Noise. Um, Music. How do we perceive? Sounds that are not coming from the loudspeaker, but are in the room where you're actually living, listening to the loudspeaker. Those are also uh, to be heard. I'm Joey Taylor, and you're switched on to The Wire. To plug in deeper, visit cbc.ca slash The Wire. In episode five, we heard the voices of John Cage, Mark Kingwell, David Took, Dennis Patrick, Gail Young, Justin Fong, Gordon Monaghan, Kenny Kahn, John Oswald, Steve Reich, and the music of the Muzak website, Eric Satie, the Surakarta Conservatory Gamelon, Claude Debussy, The Police, Ella Fitzgerald, Robert Fripp, Brian Eno, Pete Namluk, and Wabi. Each week on The Wire, we take all those voices and all that music and hand them to an electronic music producer to see what they make of it all. Here's this week's Wire, remixed. Hi, I'm Justin Fong, a.k.a. Itsuji, and this is my remix of Episode 5 of The Wire. Isolation. 
Wire Episode 5 remix was produced by Nitsuji in Toronto. The Wire is produced by Paolo Pietro Paolo in Vancouver, Chris Brooks in St. John's, and me in Toronto. I'm Joey Taylor. If you'd like to get in touch, you can email us at thewire at cbc.ca or for details on anything you've heard on the show, check out the website at cbc.ca slash thewire and be sure to plug in again same time next week. Thank you.